That would help, wouldn't it, Tom? There we go. <laughs> I turn it off sometimes between services just to make sure that there's no excess noise. So how do you follow up Easter? Right? You know, it, it, we have the sense that, you know, we're like standing before the empty tomb. We have a sense of all the possibilities. And what do we do now? Right? Or, or maybe a different imagery. It's like we're, we're on the top of, of the mountain like Moses, looking out at the promised land, and then we said, well, how do we get from here to there, right? Because in Easter, the resurrection, we, we recognize through the cross, we've been freed from the old life that was holding us back. And now that we've been released through the new life that Christ can give us, how do we actually come to experience that life, right? How, 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 do, we, how do we feel that joy, that hope, that purpose, experience that transformation. How does that all work? How does that come to life in us? And, and um, it's a big challenge. And the, and the, the, the passage of Scripture, the, the book that I believe that God has led me to, is for us to do just a, a quick six-week study of the book of James. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of James. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a Bible right underneath the chair in front of you, and you'll find our text today on page 1025. If you're using your own Bible, um, the book of James is over towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, so if you get to Revelation and kind of work your way back a little bit, you'll come to James. And if you get to the book of Hebrews, you've gone too far. But there are three reasons I'm really drawn to James today, all right? We're, we're going to kind of get into our content in just a minute. But three reasons. First of all, the book of James, in all likelihood, was the very first piece of the New Testament was, that was written after Jesus was resurrected. So before any of the writings of Paul, before any of the Gospels were written, before the book of Acts, before any of that stuff, the, probably the very first piece of the New Testament that was penned was the book of James. So it gives us this great window into how the early church was trying to figure out how to do this new life of Christ in the real world. How to stand in front of the empty tomb and then go seize the moment that could come from it. The second reason I'm drawn to this, the book of James is that it is, even though Jesus is only mentioned twice, it seems weird, right? New Testament book, there's only two references to Jesus, James 1.1, 1, 1, James 2.1, right? Besides that, nothing, really. But the book of James probably makes more allusions to the teaching of Christ than any other New Testament um, book outside of the Gospels, which obviously give us the teaching of Jesus, right? But when you read the book of James, you're going to see the echoes of the teaching of Christ even more so than you do in the writings of Paul. And so we're going to see that today. We're going to see echoes from the Sermon on the Mount in other places where Jesus taught. So what you see is you see the early church trying to figure out, this is what Jesus talked about. This is what he taught the new life really looks like. And here you see them trying to figure out the questions that arise from trying to live out that truth on a daily basis. The third reason I'm really drawn to the book of James is that James... Outside of possibly the Apostle Paul was the person who was most impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think his life was more transformed by the resurrection than virtually anybody except for the Apostle Paul. And why do I say that? 
Well, some of it, you have to ask the question, who is James? Right, we're going to read in just a minute, verse 1. It's going to say, James, right, a, you know, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who's James? Well, it could have been James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, who wrote the fourth gospel, and we also have his three letters in the New Testament. But that's probably not likely, because James, the brother of John, was actually martyred very early in the book of Acts. He was one of the first apostles to be taken. In fact, it brought so much pleasure to the Jews that they went ahead and arrested Peter and were getting ready to execute him too until God provided the great escape and out he went, right? You'll have to go read the book of Acts if you want to get that story. So it's probably not James because this book was written somewhere around 52, 53 AD, somewhere in that early 50s. And so this is probably a good 15 or more years after that. So it's not James, the son of Zebedee. There's another apostle called James the Less. How would you like to be called James the Less? Right? I, I could go for James the Greater, right? Or something else. James the Less, right? So he's called James the Less. And, and we see a reference him into chapter 2 of the book of Acts, but after that we never hear from him again. And, and to tell you the truth, if, 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 if he was going to be the guy who wrote this book, then clearly... He probably would have had a more prominent place in the way that the story unfolded. Not that God didn't use him in a powerful way. It just wasn't in the storyline that we see in the book of Acts. And the guy who wrote our book that we're going to start studying today clearly was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And what we have come to understand and believe is that the James who wrote this book is actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Different father. Same mother, right? And whenever you see him in the Gospels, he's joining in the family, and he is a skeptic about Jesus. You know, Jesus is out drawing crowds, getting into the trouble with the leaders, all that kind of stuff, and and the families come and say, you know what, you need to come home with us. You know, we're we're a little overwhelmed in the carpentry shop. Come home and help us build some furniture, and we'll get you some medication and calm you down a little bit. You know, and, and so he's a skeptic, right? Right up until the time that Jesus is resurrected. And then he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. The, the, the core mother church of all the expansion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who never really quite got it and maybe didn't want to get it while his brother was alive, is now the guy. And I think every single one of these reasons are are priceless for us as we stand on our own mountain looking at the promised land of what does it really mean to live in the full aftermath of the resurrection. And so that's what we're going to see in the book of James, is how is it that you and I live out real faith in the way God designed it? And so James starts, and I, and I want to start by reading verses 1 through 8. So again, I hope you have a Bible out. You turn to, to James chapter 1. Again, if it's one of the Bibles underneath your chair, it's, it's page 1025. But I want to read verse 8 and just, and just kind of bring it out into the light for us. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So he starts out, James, think the younger brother of Jesus Christ, a slave of God, And now of the Lord Jesus Christ, he gets it. 
to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So these are 12 tribes might be a reference to Jewish Christians. Most likely it's to the churches that have spread out from Jerusalem. And that's what the dispersion means, that these are the ones who have moved outside of Palestine. And he's writing to these spiritual leaders who are still looking to him for spiritual guidance on how to do the real faith in the real world. And this is where he starts. Consider the great joy, my brothers, that's kind of like you guys, right? You know, it's, it, it's men and women, right? So consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance has got to do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking zip, nothing. Everything that God wants to give you, you will have an experience because endurance has done its complete work so that you may be mature and complete. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it'll be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind, that that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. So get this, okay? This, this is what James, the one impacted by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is now the leader of this community, that he's passing on to them. How do you take the teachings of Christ and live them out in the real world so that you actually have everything that God intends to give to you? And this is what he says. He says, real faith takes the lemons of everyday life, runs them through the pressure cooker of endurance, and lets them produce spiritual lemonade. And if you don't know how to do that, just ask God, and he'll show you how, as long as you really want to know how. Pretty clear, right? So we're good? All right, we'll see you next week. We look at that, all right, I, I get it, right? He says, you know, when you have hard times, you got to put in the work in the weight room to build up the muscles, and what comes out is the person that you really want to be, the person you should be in Jesus Christ. I, I get all of that. And if you don't know how to do that, just ask God, and he's going to show you how to do it, but you've got to really want it, right? You know, you can't be double-minded. I, I, I use the illustration in the first service, like, I'm really kind of torn today, right? There's a part of me that would really love for it to rain this afternoon. Because then I can watch the Celtics game and I can take a nap, right? But the other part of me is hoping it doesn't rain because then I can do some yard work, which I really need to do, and I can go play nine holes of golf. So what do I really want? And so he says, you know, if, if, if you really want to be a person who can take what life throws at you, run it through this juicer of endurance and produce the lemonade of being complete in Jesus Christ, man, you've got to really want it. And he can't be trying to go in both directions at the same time. Right? You can't, you can't say, God, I, I want you to give me security and make me, and then not be willing to be a giver. And say, God, I, I want to be a powerhouse of the Holy Spirit in my life, but 
don't stop asking me to sleep. Ask, don't ask me to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or give up, or my girlfriend or give up pornography. We say, you know, I, I, I want my cake, but I want to be able to eat it too. And he says, you're, you're no different than the waves that come in and out on the shoreline. You're not getting anywhere. He says, you can't be tossed around. But their reaction, as James knew, was going to be just like yours. It may be pretty easy to understand that you take the difficulties of life, you run them through the juicer of endurance, and out comes the spiritual lemonade of having everything God wants to give us. But how in the world do you really do that? And believe it or not, the rest of the chapter of James 1 speaks to all those issues. James is going to back up and he's going to talk about trials. And then when he gets done talking about trials, he's going to talk about how do you get that wisdom And then when he gets done talking about how you get the wisdom that allows you to be complete, he's going to actually talk about what being complete in Christ really looks like. So I want to walk us through the rest of this today, right? So hopefully you'll keep your Bible open and maybe even write a few notes as we go along. But I want to pick up in verse 9, and I want to read down um, through verse 12 to start. So James is going to do two things here. He's, He's first of all, trials that you have to endure are going to come in two different types. One of those are going to be external trials, which is what you and I would generally call trials. The other trials are going to come internally. We would generally call that temptation, right? And so, and, and, and so he deals with one first, and then he deals with the other second. Again, they say, all right, what about these trials? How are they? What are they? What are, so, and he begins to give an answer. So look at verse 9 says, the brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. The but one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass. It flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed, just like my lawn's going to look like in about six weeks, right? You know, it's just going to be brown and ugly, you know? For the sun rises with a scorching heat and dries up the grass. It flowers, its flowers fall off and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. A man who endures trials is blessed. Because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, a few things I want you to see here out of this text. What James tells us is that trials are going to come in two different forms, right? Life's going to happen. A lot of it's on the outside, right? There's stuff that you can't control, stuff I can't control, right? It's outside, right? And he said the outside trials are going to come in two forms. It could come in the form of poverty, and it can come in the form of prosperity. Let that sink in for a minute. Trials can come in the form of poverty. We get that, right? It can also come in the form of prosperity. Maybe another way to put it is sometimes it's because we have difficulties, but trials can also come in when we are experiencing the good stuff. And the good stuff themselves are the trial. We can experience trials because of defeat, but we can also experience victory because, uh, trials because of victory. Right? And, and so what he's saying is that life as it goes on, whether it's 
hard or whether it's really great, both of those are actually tempting us, challenging us to skew our view of ourselves and to skew of ourselves of God. The poor guy is, is, is saying, you know what, I don't matter. My life doesn't count for anything. I'm unworthy. I'm powerless. There's nothing I can do, right? And, and God doesn't really love me very much. Look, look where he's left me, skewing his view of himself and of God. The rich man, I'm in with the big man. He loves me. He likes what I'm doing, right? So I'm getting everything, right? So I don't have to change anything. I'll just keep going about what I'm going about, but the moment's going to come when that's all going to get torched. And so trials can come in the form of success or in difficulty. And that's a new thought for a lot of us, right? We, we, we think, well, you know, if, if this is the good stuff that God's given me, how can it be? And it, and it can actually pull us away. And we can respond, say, you know, I, I, you know, I don't need God the same way. And excuse our sense of dependence. Our, we give up our sense of humiliation before God. And, and this is what James promises. Whether we are struggling with the difficult challenges of life or some of the greatest moments of life, if you and I will endure those trials, what we're going to do is we're going to pass the test and we're going to receive the crown of life. You know one of the things I learned this year? So the crown of life is like a victor's crown. You know, they would have the games and that kind of stuff, and, and the Romans were big for that. They, everywhere they went, they built an arena and, you know, had various things and all kinds of games. And, 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 and the winner got a victory crown, right? They were the champion. You know, one of the things I learned this year is that the name Neil means champion. So a little backstory to that, right? So a few years ago, I was in Rwanda, and one of the pastors we were teaching, it was, it was a woman, she was pregnant. She was about four weeks or so from having her baby when I, we were there. So I was teasing her. I said, you know, if you have a boy, you've got to name it Neil. I wasn't being serious. She named him Neil. So, you know, I guess unique names must be in in Rwanda as well because he's probably the only kid in Rwanda who's named Neil, right? And so, so I go back this year, and she says, I have a question for you. Said my son has started going to school, and they've asked him, what does your name mean? So he came home and asked me, he says, Mom, what does my name mean? And she said, so I'm asking you, what does Neil mean? Right? And I'm like, I have no idea. It's just a name I think my parents liked. And they just get, you know, that kind of thing. So I went back, and we actually had internet access. So is this a picture of him? There he is. That's, that's Neil. He's a lot better looking than me, isn't he? Anyways, and he... Um, and I looked it up, and the name Neil means champion. And, and what James is saying to us, says, listen, in your life, there's a lot of external stuff that's going to come, that's going to challenge you as you get off the mountain and try to get through the valley into the promised land. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to tempt you to stay in the valley. Some of it's going to be hard stuff, but some of it's going to be good stuff. But if you want your name to be Neil, you've got to keep going. supposed to laugh at that anyway what's the matter with you? so if you want the victory things it's a lot of pieces to, you know it's it's interesting i told the first service that you know that one of the figures right in in the in pilgrim's progress is a, that they talk about is a guy called mr faces both ways 
right? Facing towards moving towards God, moving across the valley to the promised land, or the one who wants to go back to Jericho, which is right along the river in the middle of the valley, trying to face both ways. He said, you know, if, 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 you're, if that's what you're doing, when you come to the trials of good stuff or bad stuff, you're not making it through. And you're not going to get to be called Neil. You're not going to get the victor's crown. But trials don't just come from the external. Trials come from the internal. You and I call those temptations. Follow along, if you will. Verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Zip, zero. God has chosen to define himself and his autonomy, if you will, that he is not going to be tempted by evil, and he's not going to tempt anybody else to be evil. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Like a fish swimming in the water, they see the lure flashing over the other side, and they decide to go over and check it out. And then when... and. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And they latch onto the lure, and the hooks are set. It says, don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Notice how he keeps saying, you know, this is, the, you know, I care about you guys. Right? This is hurting me than it's hurt more than it's hurting you. You ever heard that from your parents? Right? Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. And by his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth. In other words, we're living in the aftermath of Easter. We can, be, we can have a whole new life in Christ so that you and I can be the first people on the planet to experience what it means to have eternal life, to be the first fruits of his creatures. So what is, Paul, what is James really saying to us here? He said, when it comes to temptation, here's what, this is a very simple point. Real faith takes responsibilities for its own actions. Real faith takes responsibility for its own actions. And I don't mean by that by saying, yeah, it was my fault. I mean it's saying, the reason I'm not living the way I'm supposed to be living, it's my fault. It's not God's fault. It's not the world's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. The reason I am not experiencing all the new life is because of me. He says, you know what? He said, Nobody should say, hey, you know... You know, if you're being tempted or whatever, that this is God's fault, right? That's an Adam thing, right? Adam, you know, they show up in, in the garden, right? And, and God says, well, what have you done? He said, it's the woman that you gave me, led me to the it so it's your fault, right? I mean, I, I, I used this illustration in the service this morning. Somebody asked me afterwards, did that really happen to you? Said, no, right? So this is just a, a, but imagine this morning, I'm driving to church, Right? So I'm coming down Route 62, and I'm merging into Route 12 in, in the center of Sterling. And while I'm parked at the, stop, at the stop sign waiting for a vehicle to go by, somebody just rams into the rear end of me, right? Just tears up my car, the, 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 the um, uh, uh, airbag goes off, all that kind of stuff. And I get out of the car, and I am just 
so I'm yelling and screaming and swearing and pounding on the hood and shaking my fist at everybody. And, 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 and then the police show up to do an accident report. And so they say, all right, name, Neil Davidson. Address, Beeman Road. Occupation? Oh, oh, before I tell you my occupation, I got to tell you, this is all God's fault. God's the one who gave me that car. I love that car. He gave it to me as a blessing. And God, God's the one who designed my body with nerves in it. And I'm in pain. And God is the one who made this moron of a driver behind me who ran into me. So I cannot be held responsible for my actions. This is all God's fault. Now, that's a little facetious, right? But I've got to tell you, there's a lot of us who live that way. We say, I have no other choice. This is what I have to do. James says, if that's the way you're living your life, you're never going to really experience what it means to lack nothing that God offers in you. Whether you're saying, I have no choice but to disobey, he's saying, you're never, ever going to get to the place where you lack nothing of what God is trying to give you. And so you have, real faith steps up and says, it's my fault, and I can do better, and I will do better. So how do you do that? So he turns back to this idea of asking for wisdom. How is it that when we ask for wisdom that we actually get it from God and we can live it out as long as we're not Mr. Faces two ways, right? And he comes around and he picks this up in verse 19, and it runs down to verse 25. And you're going to find it very surprising when he says you're going to find the wisdom to do life such that trials can run through the processor of endurance and produce the spiritual lemonade of being complete in Christ, that's going to come as you know and obey the word of God. Follow these verses. My dearly loved brothers. You notice how he's always buttering them up a little bit, right? You know, listen, no, 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 I know I'm being harsh. I'm stepping on your toes. I'm challenged, but you know what? I really care about you guys. So understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all moral filth and evil. Humbly receive the implanted word of God. That's the command verb in there, receive. Humbly receive the implanted word because that word is able to save you. But be doers of the word. Not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom, which is, we see that communicated to us in the scripture, the perfect law of freedom, and perseveres in it, and it's not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works. This person will be blessed in what he does. So, a couple things to unpack here. He starts out with saying, you know, you got to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And, and some of this is coming out of the context of the early church. Believe it or not, the early church was really a chaotic mess. And so that's part of what he said. That they, were, they didn't really necessarily have like the preacher. I mean, you guys know at this point in time, there's a time in our service where you're all supposed to shut up and I do the talking, 
right? I mean, we all know that, right? And, and we just kind of fall into that mode, right? Somebody's like, great nap time, you know, and you just know, right? And, but that's not the way it was. I mean, in the old days, everybody popped up. And so the church, actually, in the early days, especially in the days of Jay, it was chaotic. So one guy's standing up and he's trying to share a word and another guy is jumping up and cutting them off and, and, you know, nobody's really listening to what the other guy's saying. They're just kind of figuring out what they want to say so they can look good. And it's just this, it's just this melee in the church. I, it was interesting. Uh, just not too long ago, I was with a pastor friend of mine and he said, and he asked me some, for a little bit of input and he was already starting to deal with it, but he has a guy in his church who's a huge amener, right? Just wants to say amen all the time, right? And, and I got to tell you that sometimes amen is really a good thing, right? You know, and like, up from the grove of your new life, you know, amen. You know, that's, I, you can do a few of those. It's all right with me. You want to practice? Amen. amen. All right, there we go. But this guy was just like, in a 30-minute sermon, he was amen like 100 times. You know, so sometimes he got it right, like, you know, and God wants to bless us. Amen. Well, you know, so be it. Other times like, you know, yeah, my kid broke his tooth. Amen. You know, or I stubbed my toe. Amen. You know, and it's like, and, and it's just, and, and so people stopped listening to the pastor. They were just counting how many amens he was going to say. Right? And, and so, you know, I used to, but what he's saying here is that we need to create in corporate worship, and we need to create in our personal worship a culture that allows us to be attentive to the Word of God. Do you have that in your life? If you're going to ask God for wisdom, and He's ready to give it to you in abundance, and if you really mean it, you have to create an arena in your life where you can be attentive to the Word of God. It's not just something you dial up when you have a couple extra minutes in the car or whatever. It's interesting. One of the guys walking out this morning said, I've started a new journey, and they brought a journal, and he's starting to take notes of the sermons. He says, I, I listened a whole lot better today than I usually do, which makes me feel really good, right? It's like all the other ones were, you know, but I mean, at least we're getting there. But, you know, how do you cultivate an attentive heart? He said, if you're going to do it, you've got to be, you've got to be slow to speak, you've got to be quick to hear, and those kinds of things where you want to rack things and say, God, I can't do that. That's stupid. I can't turn it out to you. I can't forget this part. You know, this anger that pushes. I said, you've got to get rid of all that stuff so you can humbly receive the word of God. And, and the other thing, and then he uses this imagery of a mirror, right? And, and so imagine, imagine you know, we, we, you know, we, we stand before the mirror on on a Sunday morning, kind of getting ready for church, and you know, we smile and say, "Oh, yeah, I got some seeds left from the smoothie I had left stuck in my teeth." I don't. Does that happen to anybody else besides me? You get the seeds stuck in there, and you know, the the ear hair is starting to have a life of its own, and there's a little wax on it, and you know, you're a little fat, you know, and 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 you know, the hair's a little disheveled, and you just walk walk away, and you just walk out the door, right? When you're looking in the mirror, you're seeing who you are. You're also getting a sense of who you could be, right? Boy, if I just comb that a little bit, run the toothbrush some, clip out a little bit of the ear hair. I'm trying to keep your attention again, right? You know, get the wax out a little bit, you know, lose a little bit of weight. You know, I I might look presentable. But when we look in the mirror and say, "Eh, I'm good, and off we go, and thankfully none of you look like that this morning, he said, if, if, that's what, if, we're, if we're taking this and God is laying it out for us, what it is that you and I can do 
to experience everything that he's given to us, right? To have this new life lacking in nothing. There's not a morsel of what God wants to give us that's left on the table. He said, there is no substitute for doing or obeying what God has shared with us. When we climb off that mountain and head towards the promised land, there's only one pathway to follow, and that's called the pathway of obedience. You can't be just hearers of the word. you got to be doers of the word. You can't just look in the mirror and say, man, I, I, you know what? I could be somebody, but that's good. You, know, you, you, you got to respond. There is no alternative to simply obeying what it is that God tells us to do if we're going to be people who live with wisdom in the real world. So then he gets around. For, so, so he's worked through trials. Say, hey, they're going to come at you in lots of shapes and forms. Some of them are going to be good things. Some of them are going to be really difficult things. Some of them are going to be temptations that come from the inside out. All of that, you got to The resource, it's right here. It's right here. God has given us a manual. He's also given us a personal trainer, the Holy Spirit, on how to live this all out so that we can be the people that God wants us to be. So what does it look like when we get to be mature? And that's what we find in verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious, if anybody thinks they've arrived at the new life, without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless, and he's an idiot. He deceives himself. Read that. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, you hear the echo here? Jesus teaching, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless And he deceives himself. We just need to look at the way we talk to see if we are really complete in Christ. And and, and that can go, and then we're going to come back to this topic, which may actually be very troubling to some of us, right? Because he's not going to leave it alone. He's going to talk about it a little later in the book, about the tongue as a fire and and all kind of things. But, But the thing I want you to get is, I think there are three elements you really look up. First of all, in our speech, do we tell the truth? Do we tell the truth? If we lie, we fudge, we manipulate, whatever, do we tell the truth? Secondly, there, is there vulgarity or foulness in our mouths? Right? And the third thing is, do our words build up or tear down? Are, are, are they motivated by love or are they motivated by motivated by anger and criticism and et cetera. He says, if, if you really want to look at what it means to have everything that God offers in Jesus Christ, it means that you've learned to speak truth. That the goodness in your heart is what comes out. And even though you may need to speak a difficult word, it's always to build up, never to destroy. It's not about venting. It's about edifying. He doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion, right? The type of faith that has everything, lacking nothing, right? 
right? Before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Orphans and widows were the most vulnerable people in the ancient world. It was a man's world. And if you were a widow, you just go read the book of Ruth and some other places, right? If you're a widow and you didn't have another man coming into your life, your life was going to be hard. If you were an orphan who didn't have a parent, you were virtually hopeless, right? I, I remember, you know, I, I think about uh, the, some of the, the Africans who were in refugee camps in parts of Africa. Right now in Rwanda, there's a number of, of people who have fled across the border from the DRC into um, Rwanda and others that have fled from Burundi into Rwanda. And here are these, these young kids sitting in these rooms, in, in these camps, no access to education, no access to money, no food, some medical care, that's it. They literally have no opportunity unless somebody grants it to them. Right? He says, and the pure and undefiled religion are those who look at the most vulnerable, recognize that they're precious in God's eyes, and they look after them and build them up. You see the echoes of the Good Samaritan in there? Who's the neighbor? Is it the religious guys who cross to the other side so they can make sure that they could do what God asked them to do? Or is it the hated Samaritan who crosses the street and takes care of the guy's wounds? This is pure and undefiled religion. That you cross the street to the most vulnerable and you take care of them. Not because you're superhuman, but because God loves them. And lastly, and you keep yourself unstained by the world, that there is a sense of alignment between what you believe and who you are. There is integrity, or in James' term, perfection, between your faith and your practice. So we've read through this whole passage, and we see that in order for you and I to have everything that God wants to give us, we've got to take all the dynamics of everyday life, good and bad, we've got to run them through the juicer of endurance, if you will, living our lives with wisdom so that God can produce the lemonade of lacking nothing of what he wants to give us, right? And what God has been saying over and over again is, I'm ready to give this if you're ready to want it. And so really the question is, are we game for that today? Is that really what you want? This idea of being complete, mature, lacking nothing, that's the ours for the taking if we want it. Are you game? Let's pray together. Just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to celebrate the God who has spoken to us. We're going to have a chance to give an offering back to the Lord, acknowledging our dependence upon him for all the good things in our lives. We're going to have a chance to share our prayer needs and those kinds of things. But, but I really pray we'll use these moments to ask ourselves, are we really game to have everything that he wants to give us? I want to give you just a moment
to pray quietly between your own heart and God and ask yourself, are you game? Are you a Mr. Faces Two Ways? Or you are only facing towards a new life that God has given us in Jesus Christ? Father, I can't answer that question for everybody else. I can answer it for me. But I can give you thanks that there's not a single spiritual resource that you're withholding from us that would cause us to come up short of all that you want us to be in Jesus Christ. You've given us the truth. You've given us the Holy Spirit. Father, you've given us a, a, a team to do it with called the church so that none of us gets left behind. But we can make it off the mountaintop, through the valley, and into the promised land. So Father, today, without doubting, we ask you to make us complete in Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.